come to the door. I don't know how long he was out there. But he come to the door. And when he come to the door, there must have been a loud hurrah. And Peter immediately says, shh, be quiet, be quiet. This is not like what happened shortly before. It's probably a couple of years before when he and John were in prison. Do you remember? And, and God re, uh, delivered them from prison. And they went back, basically, to the uh, temple and preached. You remember that? They went back and preached. This isn't preaching now. The Holy Spirit is moving in a different way. This is different. The Holy Spirit recognized that James was executed. This is now the personification of evil, seeking to destroy and murder. And so you see how the Holy Spirit moved in an entirely different way. And so Peter understood that. Be quiet. Don't say anything. I'm going to go into hiding. You know, this, you see a good example of the fact of how the Holy Spirit works as disparately from how we would work. Because here's what I would have done. Oh, this is fantastic. Look, God brought you out of the prison. We're going to go marching right downtown right now, right to the middle of the square. We're going to parade you around, and thousands of people will be astonished, and we'll come. Wouldn't we? We'd do that, right? You would do that. It was like when, they were on, when, when uh, the disciples were with Jesus on the mount, and, and uh, Moses appeared, right? And they had the Mount, Trans, mount of Transfiguration. What did they want to do? Well, let's build. Let's build a temple. Let's build a temple. You know, it's how, it's how man works, isn't it? It's so different. That's why I say to you, we have to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to be on our knees and in communion with God to understand really how we need to act in every aspect of our life. There shouldn't be one part of your life that you don't go before God and ask for prayer. This is a thing you need to do. You know, it's funny. I remember going to school as a kid from the time we went, left our house and, and went to school, we would have to walk a pretty far amount of time for, for little kids. We would walk almost a half a mile or three-quarters of a mile to school. And I remember my mother, we got on our knees every morning before we left that house and we prayed. Every single morning. And I'm going to tell you something. You want to you be a positive influence for your kids? We prayed on our knees before we went to school right up through the time I went to high school. That permeated every aspect of my life. And the memory of that for me was that every important part of my life, I needed to ask God in prayer. And I have a little plaque that I keep in my kitchen that I got as a teenager. And it says, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? And when you think about some of the really dumb things you've done in your life, and frankly, I've done plenty of them, I can tell you the really dumb things I've done, I didn't pray about it. Okay? They sounded pretty good to me. Didn't think I needed to pray about it. I've learned. Pray about it. And so the Holy Spirit obviously tells Peter, brother, this is not the time to go down to the town hall. This is a time to get out of town. And Peter gets out of town. We don't know where he goes. He's going to disappear now for a while. And the stage is going to be set 
for Paul and Barnabas. But I would like you to turn, if you would, as we continue our study in chapter 12. Uh, and, uh, of course, in the morning when the Herod Agrippa, not my relative, I told you that, Herod Agrippa found out that they had walked out of jail, he blew his top and executed all of the soldiers. And I'll tell you, I've also been praying about this. It seems to me that if I were a soldier during that period of time, and they brought one of the apostles in to jail, Norm, can I sign off on this duty? Because it generally doesn't work well, you know? If you look at this, you go, oh, this, this, is not, this is not good for my long-term career. And I have to guard them. And, I, you know, you wonder, you wonder, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about this. You wonder what was the impact of this. You wonder. Now, we know it didn't have an impact on Herod Agrippa. We know that. But you wonder about soldiers. And one of the things that we do know, we do know that there were centurions who became Christians besides Cornelius. So clearly, clearly God's message was getting across. Um, and so if you would turn then to uh, your, that chapter 12, chapter 12, and begin with uh, verse uh, 19, actually 20. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Caesarea is about 33 miles and he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace. This guy is a politician. I want you to see this. This guy is a politician. He's also a Jew. Herod Agrippa is a Jew. Uh, and he's put in that post because Rome wanted to keep the Jews under control. So they needed someone who would be loyal to Rome, yet someone whom the Jews would say, well, he's a Jew, so we're effectively guard, guard, you know, governing ourselves. And so that, that's what's going on here. And um, Blastus becomes effectively lo like a lobbyist. All right, it's like if you knew, if you, had a, had a, uh, you wanted to get to Obama, the way to get to him would be to find somebody close to him, you would do it that way. And that's what's going on here. It's very similar uh, to today when, you know, in order to get to the right person, you have to know the intermediary. Well, Blastus was the intermediary, and these people were asking for peace because they had depended on the king's country for their food supply. We don't know what their problem was, what their issue was, but they were clearly at odds. And then verse 21, and this is the point I want to make as I bring this chapter to a close, and this is important. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, remember, he's a Jew. 
Remember, he knows who Jehovah is. Obviously not a religious Jew. But you can imagine sitting there and you can just see him in your mind's eye, can't you? When he stands there and the crowd goes, he must be a God and I can almost see him go like this. <laughs> right? You could see it. You could just see that in this passage. And, and so here's what someone would say in the world if you talk to someone. This is ridiculous. How can you people believe the Bible? When you get stories like this, this is a fairy tale. The guy is struck down because he was acting. Well, what is that about? Really? Really? One of the great things about the Bible, you see I brought some additional reference works today. One of the great things about the Bible, its accuracy can be tested by secondary corollary sources. And here's an example I'm going to give you where Josephus, the great Jewish historian, who wrote a series of volumes called The Antiquities of the Jews, The Histories of the Jews, in the first century, right around this time, Josephus, who was considered by most modern historians as, as accurate, reliable, historically significant, he actually writes about this very incident. And I wanted to read you, I have, a, I have the, the uh, quotes from his reference, and I wanted to read this to you. This is, this is from his series of volumes called The Antiquities of the Jews. This is in Book 19, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2. I hope you're taking notes. And this is exactly what it says. Quote, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety. At which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout the province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver. Josephus thus describes the dress which Herod wore on that occasion. Quote, He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a wonderful contexture. And early in the morning came into the theater where the shows were going to take place, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the first reflection of the sun's rays upon it, the sun's rays upon it shone after a surprising manner and was so resplendent 
as to spread a horror over those that looked intently on him. This guy timed his entrance so that when he would walk in, the sun would be at a perfect angle. He's dressed entirely of silver. I have no idea how he did this, but the garment was actually made of silver. He's in there waiting at this moment for the sun to hit the right, correct angle. It's illuminated as if <laughs> it's, I guess, on fire or a light, a light. And this is what the people said. And this is a quote. And presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another place, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful unto us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a king, yet shall we henceforth now show you as superior to mortal nature. This is Josephus, folks. This isn't Luke. This isn't your Bible writer. This is a great historian. And it goes on. Josephus then says, he did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. How do you like that? A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he was quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. Josephus does not mention that it was done by an angel, but says the following, that when Herod looked up, this is from, from Josephus, he saw an owl sitting on a rope over his head. An owl, O-W-L, an owl, a bird. But a bird not seen during the day. He looked up and he sees an owl on a rope over his head and judged it to be an evil omen. And he immediately became sick. Now, I rest my case. <laughs> I rest my case. Okay? For those of you who say, come on, these are just Bible stories, Brother John. This can't possibly be true. Trust me, brother and sister, this is true. This is true. It couldn't be any more true. And so there you have Josephus laying out for you, a historian laying out to you exactly what Luke said. In fact, it's even, in my, my opinion, more horrifying. More horrifying. You could see the calculated nature of what Josephus did. Let me dress in silver. Let me do this and I'll walk in and the light will hit it and I will look like a god and that's exactly what he did. And so what you also see here, and this is a lesson for you, you understand how serious God looks at the sin of pride. 
Okay? You want to get an idea of how serious God views pride? Here it is. Where a man can say, I can rise up, and through my own pride, I can be viewed as God. I'm so talented. I'm so gifted. And when I put on this silver coat, look at how great I look. This is why, when you understand, you understand why Lucifer was struck down. Why, why the, the most serious of sin started with pride. When Lucifer himself said, as we know from reading the Bible, oh, I, am, I can be the equivalent of God. And here I am, all this great gifts that I have, this, this angel, this angel of light he was called. They said he was a tremendous musician. I read, I read one of the commentaries where someone said that probably... He was probably in charge of praise and worship in the sense in heaven, in the sense of his gifts, like a, like a musician of the first order. And yet with all these gifts, with everything that he had, that he was above all these other angels, what did he do? His, his, the nature of him, the very nature of him said, looked at Jesus and he wanted to be the equal of Jesus. He wanted to be God. And that's what struck him down. So you understand how serious pride is and how God views pride. And so here it is. Struck down. 54 years of age. Healthy man. Struck down. Right there in the middle. Uh, and his, his body is filled with worms. I mean, it's an awful death. But what happens at the time while this is going on, and we finish, we see, but the word of God continues to increase and spread. So even though Peter is not, gone, not around, Peter has moved off the scene, the work of God is increasing and growing. The church is growing. It's adding to its, its congregants and its disciples. And so now Barnabas and Saul finish their mission in Jerusalem, and now go back to Antioch. And now the main episodes that we follow from this point on in Acts will be mostly centered out of the Antioch church. That will be considered the missionary church. This will be the place where the missionaries go out into the world. And we are now going to begin to study a series of trips made by Barnabas and Paul that will effectively change the Christian world. Effectively change it. And so if you turn to chapter 13, it says in verse 1, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. First thing I want to bring to your attention is that they are, they are at this point not separating out the various talents. They're just saying prophets and teachers. They name these five men. And these five men come from all different parts of the world. Some from Africa. All different parts of the world. Uh, but it's also interesting to look at the background of some of these men. Now we know Paul, and by the way, you're going to see later on in this chapter, this will be the first time Saul is referred to as Paul. It's this chapter. From that point on, he will be forever known as Paul and not Saul. But it's interesting because here you have Paul who came, 
who was very well educated, studied under Gamaliel, whose family were tent makers, obviously prosperous enough to be able to send their son to Jerusalem and study. Then you have this gentleman called Menaean, who, who studied, says was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was in charge of Galilee. And so he was raised, effectively schooled with him, which meant that he also had to be a fairly affluent person. And then you have Barnabas. And we know that Barnabas was in business and was a successful businessman as well. So you see here how there, this, you don't, I don't want you to get the sense now that the Antioch church uh, is like the Jerusalem church where they were basically uh, impoverished fishermen. That's not the case. That's not the case here. It's a very kind of a different church that's going on here. And so they said while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Circle fasting. This is something that we don't talk about much. We don't really talk about the nature of fasting as a part of our prayer life. And I think we probably ought to from time to time. But I think there is an appropriate aspect in prayer, in your prayer life, for when you really are confronted with something that seems insurmountable, where it is appropriate to say to the Lord, I'm going to fast. I'm going to change the routine of my life. I'm going to focus on this issue, God, for a period of time. And I'm asking you through the Holy Spirit to illumine me. And I think this is a wonderful example for us as a church, how to operate. Because look at, look at what happens here as a result of this. And I think it's so beautiful. It says, while, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... It wasn't the superintendent of missionaries. It wasn't the committee of nine or the committee of five. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Oh, Lord. What an example for us of how to lead our lives. That you actually call upon God and wait for the answer. And somebody said to me this morning, which I thought was very good, we're all really pretty good at calling upon God, but it's like, you know, we want the answer by noon, and when it's like 11 o'clock, we get antsy, and that's when we start dropping our own solutions. Well, obviously God... I assume now that since I haven't heard precisely from you, you want me to go in this direction. Disaster. Disaster. You wait upon God. What a lesson that is for us, waiting upon God. And whatever it is that you're, that you're talking about, whether you're asking God to call you into some kind of ministry or service to God and you're waiting upon him for an answer, he'll, he will answer. Remember, sometimes the answer is no. Okay? Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes it's not yet. We have to learn to, to understand that. And so it says, call them to the work that I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And that's the model. That is the model that the church 
attempts to follow today. As I told you this morning, that's what's happening with my son this morning. He's being commissioned. The church has prayed about it, uh, and they believe that, the, that through the Holy Spirit that he should be a pastor in charge of, of one of the regional churches, and he is, he is being commissioned. They will pray for him and set him off. You've seen it here in our church where we do that with missionaries. And that's when the church prays about it and then sends them off. So that's the model that we, that we look to uh, operate under. So verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, again emphasizing by their Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Now this is interesting and important because Cyprus is where Barnabas came from. So their first trip that they're going to go to is basically back to the homeland of Barnabas. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, circle Jewish synagogues. And the reason I'm going to have you circle this is you're going to see, as we study Acts, time and time again, that the first place they would always go was to the Jewish synagogues. And the reason for this is the Jewish synagogue was the, was the center place of the cities. The learned people would be gathered there. The Jewish community would be gathered there. And generally speaking, they would be invited to get up and speak. That was typical of how they would be operating. If you were a visitor coming into a, a, a synagogue, you would be allowed to speak. And even though Paul had been designated as the representative of Jesus to the Gentiles. He was also still a Jew. And God still loved the Jewish people and would continue to leave, leave the gospel to the Jewish community. So they go to the uh, synagogue. And so they proclaim the word of God. And John Mark was their helper. Okay? Verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. What is the irony of this? Now, if you have any doubts about how serious Satan looks at the spread of the gospel, this should cure you of your confusion. This is their first trip. They've just got started. And right on start, stop number one, a Jewish sorcerer comes on the scene. Now, those of you who are Bible scholars would say to me, but Brother John, a Jewish sorcerer? The Old Testament is replete with, with words and commandments about how the occult arts are not appropriate. Sorcery is not appropriate. Well, you see here how, how this man wasn't really a Jew. He may have been a Jew by birth, but he had become a sorcerer. And really what he had been, he now sold out to Satan. He was Satan's disciple. And, and one of the things that really disturbed me as a Christian is the number of good, well-meaning Christians that go to fortune tellers. I'm sorry to say this. And I am not a legalist. I am not a person that believes 
that the way that we need to run as a, as a Christian people is a list of regulations. I do not believe that when you bring people to the gospel, you come in and give them the first thing you give them is a list of do's and a list of don'ts. I don't believe that. I believe the Holy Spirit does that. But this is not in that category. This is evil personified. And when you as a Christian go to fortune tellers, folks, it's amazing because you'll hear people say, oh, it was unbelievable. I went in there and he knew everything about me. Really? Who do you think told him? <laughs> Who do you think told him? Satan told him. Do you have any doubt about this? Satan told him. That's who told him. That's how he knows about, about your life, about what your likes and dislikes are. Satan told him. And you have walked into Satan's retreat. You are opening yourself up. You're opening yourself to the influence of demons. And this is an unbelievably serious topic. And it relates not just to fortune telling, but it relates to all of the occult arts. Something as innocuous, folks, as a Ouija board. Oh, Brother John, give me a break. A Ouija board, yes, I'm sorry to tell you, a Ouija board. Something as seemingly innocent as a Ouija board, because again, what are you asking? God doesn't speak to you through Ouija boards. Somebody else speaks to you through Ouija boards. Okay? And you know, when you, when you look on television and you'll see these episodes about these people going into homes that are filled with ghosts, You've seen it, right? Ghosts. Let me tell you. The Bible is very clear. When you die, you don't stay here. You're going to one of two places. You don't stay here. Your spirit's not here. It's gone. But do you think that Satan can't use demons to mask and to parade and to emulate the voice of people. Don't you think that that's what's going on? Make no mistake about it. And people that go to seances, all right? And then they'll say, oh, I heard. They spoke. And first of all, 95% of them are frauds, okay? But I won't say 100% are frauds. I won't say 100% are frauds because, again, it is an occult art. You are treading on the ground of Satan. And so here you see, right here, right here, stage one, first stop, the sorcerer, the occult artist, being used by Satan to stop these men because the proconsul was interested in hearing the gospel. And the last thing that Satan wants is for the gospel to be accepted by anyone, much less a high authority. This would be horrible. And so he pulls out the stops and he poisons the man's mind and now he comes face to face with the Holy Spirit where Paul, for the first time, called Paul, that's where it says, and Paul spoke under the influence of the Holy Spirit and you can just imagine if you were what it must have been like because when they left on this trip Barnabas was the leader. 
Barnabas was the director from Jerusalem, and now the Holy Spirit directed somebody else to speak. And he would never stop speaking. He would never stop speaking. He would never, never be silenced. And you can just imagine the power of his, of his message when he confronted Satan. And he calls him the deceiver. You have never stopped deceiving. Do you think he's talking to Elamas? He's not talking to Elamas. Elamas is just a stooge. He's talking to the man on his right shoulder. The prince of evil. Lucifer. Satan. And so, we're going to stop at this point and continue next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you're with us. That you take care of us. And that you give us these words, Lord, and touch our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I pray that these words may grow and inspire us, that we may meditate on them in this coming week and put them into our, our life as we strive to be better Christians and to serve you, Lord. I ask for a wall of protection upon these dear people in this class. Protect them and bring them back safely next week. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.